be interactive, okay? I want to have a little survey. I'm going to ask you all to participate if, if you're at least 25 or older, okay? And so I'm going to ask you to put yourself into one of two very broad groups, okay? And I try to fit yourselves here and just be honest, okay? The statute of limitations is run because I'm, I'm going to ask you about what you were when you were growing up in your parents' home, okay? So the first category would be raise your hand if you were not perfect, but a, generally a good kid, and you didn't go in through any major, you know, ex, you know, bad experience and rebellion. Raise your hand if you're in that category, and there better be some. Good, good. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad we've got some of those. All right. Uh, now, if of those people who just raised your hand, were there any who had a sibling, older or younger, who did go through some major rebellious period, okay? There's, okay, good, good. Now, don't raise your hand on this one. Just think to yourselves, how did you feel about that brother or sister, okay? Just think about that, all right? Now, uh, is there anybody who will admit with me that you're in the second category where you did have some major problems growing up? Okay, good, good. Thank you for being honest, all right? Uh, for our uh, last in the Elder Series on parables, we're going to dive into one of the most well-known of parables, that of the lost or what's usually called the prodigal son. Uh, and this is, this is a parable that's almost as familiar as Psalm 23 or the Lord's Prayer, uh, you know, Luke 2. Or, you know, maybe the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, and it's a common staple, or at least well-known, not only with believers, but unbelievers. Just about everybody's heard or used the term the prodigal son or a prodigal in, in that respect. Uh, and because it's so ubiquitous, it, you know, well-known, it's sometimes prone to misunderstanding, misapplication, or oversimplification. But in reality, this is a very rich parable which teaches us so much. It's, it's one that's received a lot of comment. Many a sermon's been uh, preached on this. And so I've tried to glean what Jesus is saying here and, to how, and how to apply it to our lives. But there's just so much here upon which we can chew that I simply cannot get it done in one message, which is something for which you all ought to be grateful. All right? So, uh, as you probably, if you've been here a while, you know that uh, I teach once a month generally, and I've been going through a series called Head to Heart about passing faith on. And, uh, and so last month we taught about passing faith on through the family with some practical steps. And so, Lord willing, next month I plan to return to the Head to Heart series, but just as we've talked about how the importance of marriage and family in uh, passing on faith, I think it's entirely appropriate to look at what the, the, the position of parents, or in this parable, the father and his situation. Uh, and that situation faced by the father in this parable uh, of these two brothers is one that I suspect is much more common than we hear about. 
when by all appearances there's a solid godly family who's tried to do all the right things that we might call a first chair family, but then a child or a grandchild simply checks out, turns away from the family, perhaps even denounces any faith in God. In other words, a family might be rolling along smoothly for years, and there are no perfect families, but, and, you know, of course, there might be signs when somebody gets into the teen years. But then, unexpectedly, suddenly, the wheels fall off. Now, that's an ad for next month, okay? Today, though, we're going to take a look at this parable from the perspective of the boys, okay? Not only the prodigal, but the older brother as well. So if you would, turn in your Bible to Luke 15. Uh, we're not going to read the whole thing, but in this message today, we're going to touch upon most of this chapter. And I think it would be helpful if you can kind of keep your finger there if, if, if you were here uh, last week and Mike taught on Luke 14, so if you stuff your bullets in there, it's just the next page, okay? Luke 15, we're going to start at verse 11. Jesus said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, forgive me, or give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So here Jesus addresses the character of the one to whom most of the attention is given in this parable, the prodigal. And the prodigal has two distinct characteristics. The choices that he made to make himself miserable and the choice he finally made to make himself repentant. Okay, let's start with the former. You know, most of us have learned the hard way that running away from God may start with a feeling of freedom, but it will end in misery, either in this life or the next one to come. Now, I want to just say this at the, at the front here, that, you know, there's always some questions. This text doesn't say that this is about a saved son who leaves and comes back. Uh, and I think that you could certainly use some of the practical applications that we'll eventually get into from this parable. But I think, based upon the context, we're probably talking about a son who was not saved and who was lost, as it says, and came home. 
Uh, so let's look at some of the verses here. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, goes into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Okay, uh, you know the word prodigal does not appear in the text, but that's what we all call it. And prodigal it may surprise you, but it does not mean somebody who left and repented and comes back. It literally means what that word reckless does, sometimes rendered loose or foolish. It means in a wild or abandoned manner. And this, this is a feeling of independence and freedom for a season. It's a bit like what happens when young people grow up, they graduate from high school, and maybe they go out to get a job and they get an apartment, or they go off to college, and they're out of their parents' home for the very first time. And whether it's you know, here or there, it can get a little crazy when the restraints are lifted, right? Okay, it's a little bit like skydiving. You know, when you, Steve knows about this, when you jump out of an airplane, there's this feeling of exhilaration and, and, and a, an adrenaline rush until you remember that you forgot the parachute. Yeah, yeah, that would be a problem. Verse 14, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Now, this son was not throwing away his hard-earned wealth. It was his inheritance. So, easy come, easy go, but then reality hits, a family. Who'd have thunk it? Why might that be in the design here? Verse 15, he went and hired himself out to a citizen in that country, and that guy sent him out to the fields to feed pigs. When we break our attachment with God, we will end up being attached to something else. And that attachment is more like slavery and less like a sonship. It may be drugs, alcohol, or fornication, or it could be a good job, a sport, a social media, a lake cabin, books, or even a spouse. That attachment, that attachment may be crude or it may be refined. It may be clearly evil or what we consider we, we would consider a good thing. But when we break loose from God, we will be attached to something else. And in the end, whether crude or refined, good or evil, this alien attachment will send us to the swine troughs, either in this life or the next, or both. Verse 16, he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods the swine were eating, but nobody gave him anything to eat. You and I are designed to be filled with God. And if we run from him, if we take our little earthly inheritance of time or money or energy and use it to attach ourselves to other things other than God, it won't, won't really matter whether we've got a billion bucks or we lie in a, an obscure grave somewhere. Our future will be swine food for all eternity. That's the misery that Jesus describes that when we run from the Father's house. And this is the consequence to which parents see their rebellious child running. And quite frankly, whether it's a child or a grandchild, it hurts. It hurts to see a loved one seek out the momentary pleasure of freedom, knowing ultimately that pain 
and misery is somewhere around the corner. So the good news is his repentance. When, we cannot re- when he cannot rely upon his inheritance, the prodigal is faced with real-world consequences, what us older folks call the school of hard knocks. He recognizes his plight, and he figures it out, and he receives genuine repentance. Verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger? I'm going to go back to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I want to notice three things about this repentance. First, it says he came to himself. When you're alienated from God, you are also alienated from yourself because you can't know yourself or properly relate to yourself if you're running from the one who made yourself for himself. You were made in the image of God, for God. Your identity as a human being is that you were made by God, like God, for God. Therefore, conversion is not just coming to God, it's also coming back to yourself. And this coming to yourself is figuring out the big questions of life. Where did I come from? Is there truth? What's my purpose here? Why am I here? And where am I going? Running from God is always running from ourselves. Repentance is waking up to this truth and turning around. The second part about this repentance is the humble brokenness and a deep sense of unworthiness before God. There in verse 18, it says, If I have sinned against heaven in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Lostness is not something we can make excuses for. We are guilty. We're rebels. We have all strayed. We've all turned our own way. We have all known the Father's will, and at one point in our life or another, we have all rejected it. So repentance is this deep sense of how horribly offensive this is to God. And we have no rights and no entitlement before him at all. We talk a lot today about justice. And justice is a good thing. But the last thing that I want is God's justice for me. Because justice is getting what I deserve. The third part of repentance is that we humbly cast ourselves on God's free, merciful, bountiful provision of grace. This son resolves to go to his father with a spirit of repentance. Just treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, we need to be very careful here. When we read this, uh, some people make the terrible mistake in the way that they try to come to God Uh, when they've strayed or when they're lost. Clearly, this lost son is willing to humbly come home as a servant rather than a son, but does that imply that I should relate to God as a servant who does work for God to earn a future with him? Some, perhaps some of us, will try to make up for going astray for our sin by trying to earn back our good standing with God. This might be through some self-imposed punishment like penance. 
but more often it takes the form of doing good for others. Now, while faith without works is indeed dead, our works are to follow as a result of our gratefulness for God's mercy and grace. And our works in no way earn forgiveness from God. That's not what the father of the prodigal wanted, and that's not what our father wants. The prodigal is basically saying, look at how rich and generous my father is. Even his servants eat well. So the focus here is not on the service that he can supply to his father, which the father would be obliged to compensate, The focus is rather on the incredible bounty and generosity that he so foolishly traded for the fleeting pleasures of sin. Repentance is believing that God is so great, so good, that the smallest enjoyments of his house are better than a thousand worlds without him. Now, with that changed heart, that brokenness, that humility, the son heads home. Now, each of us would like to identify with the prodigal son as examples of our repentance and our humility leading to God's forgiveness. But I want to ask, is that really where we are all at? Of course, none of us can know where any, any other person is on the inside. And I don't want to offend here, but I think it's a question that we should all ask ourselves. In some respects, the main character, or at least the main focus of Jesus in this parable, is really the older son. Why do I say that? Well, let's go back to the beginning. If you look at, the, at Luke 15, uh, back at the very beginning, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So the context of the parables in Luke 15 are all Jesus' answer to that accusation uh, and, uh, that he received sinners. Uh, and it's saying that Jesus was making a place for these sinners at his table and encouraging them to stay and eat with him. Luke uses that word for receive uh, six times in his writings, and every single time it means eagerly await, expect, and look for. So this passage says that Jesus is not just receiving sinners. He's looking for them and eagerly awaiting their coming. He has his eye out for them. The word receive sounds so passive, but Jesus is not passive. He's seeking sinners to come to him and dine with him. He is literally the hound of heaven. That is God's burden for the lost. John tells us that this burden is so great that God so loved the world, the lost, that he gave his son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting light. And so the Pharisees and the scribes accused Jesus, and all the rest of the chapter is Jesus' explanation to them as to what's really happening here when he welcomes these sinners to dine with him. And the first answer comes in verses 3 through 7, uh, when he he talks about how uh, receiving sinners is a, li- a little bit like a guy who has 100 sheep and one of them strays off and he leaves the 99 to go find th- that one. And in verse 6 it says, when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, 
Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Second answer comes in verses 8 through 10. Uh, when receiving a sinner is like a woman who's got 10 coins, she loses one, she searches frantically for that one coin, and when she finds it, she says in verse 9, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I lost. And in both answers, Jesus leaves no doubt what he means. Because in verse 7 and 10, he tells the Pharisees that the lost sheep, the lost coin, represents sinners who were lost, yet repent. And for such a one, there is more joy in heaven than when 99 righteous who need no repentance. At that moment, likely some of them got it, some of them didn't. And Jesus is saying, I welcome sinners because I am the incarnation of God's boundless love pursuing the lost. I am the shepherd seeking the sheep. I am the woman seeking the coin. When sinners return, return from their sin and accept my fellowship with the joy of their lives, as the joy of their lives, they have come home to the Father. When he receives sinners and eats with them, it is like a father who lost a son and celebrates with all of his house. All three of these parables have this in common, being lost and being found with great joy. Verse 24 sums it up. This son of mine was dead, and he has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to be merry. Therefore, for the rejoicing for a lost and found sheep or coin, gives one a glimpse of rejoicing when a lost child is found. That's exactly why Jesus was eating with these sinners and these tax collectors, so that they will be re- there will be rejoicing in heaven over one of them that was lost that is now found. Now, in walks the older son. We're going to pick it up there at verse 25. And read along with me. Now, his older son was in the field... And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But the brother was angry and refused to go in. His father therefore came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He is lost and is found. The prodigal was a rebel and a renegade. So his sins were sins of the flesh, and he ended up penniless, friendless, miserable, and joyless. The consequences of his poor decision drove him to inward humility and back to his father. The older brother was a fine son, outwardly. He stayed home, worked hard, kept his father's commandments, outwardly. He did nothing wrong that anybody could 
possibly see. In contrast, though, his sins were sins of the Spirit. By this, we mean that some sins are outward, some are inward. Some are gross sins, and others more subtle. Of course, we notice the, the outward gross sins of the prodigal more than the sins of the older brother. The older brother was outwardly moral, but resentful. Jesus had compassion for the son who was outwardly sinful, yet repentant. The older brother was serving his father without knowing the father's heart. He was serving to earn a reward. Some, perhaps most of us at times, serve God without understanding the heart of God. He didn't know what made his father's heart beat, but he could have known, he should have known, but he didn't. The elder brother did not know. Sadly, this older brother did not rejoice at his brother's return. Instead, he wrapped himself up in himself. In his mind, he had earned his father's favor. He was full of self-righteousness, self-centeredness, self-pity. The older brother was angry and refused to go, to go in. And basically said, Dad, look. Look, I served you. I obeyed your commands, but you celebrated never with me. My brother walks away from you, wastes what you gave him in sin, and now you celebrate when he comes back with his tail between his legs and begs for the comforts of home again? Really? Notice the older brother's focus on service and keeping commands. Problem is, the older brother related to his father as a slave to a master, not a son to a father. His father was merely a command giver, and he was a command keeper. And therefore, merit, not mercy, was the foundation of his relationship with his father. Therefore, mercy to his undeserving brother made him angry. All this despite the fact that the older brother had everything except for one. He had position because he was a son. He had privilege because he was with the father. He had possessions because the father says, all that I have is yours. The older brother had all of this, yet the thing that he lacked and that he really needed was joy. Compared to his younger brothers, he had the same. He was not the same, but he had a similar woe. His older brother, his younger brother went out and made himself miserable. Now, the older brother was also miserable. However, there is hope. For the, <laughs> there is hope for older brother types. You know, the person that Jesus chose to write much of the New Testament uh, and to be a great champion for God's grace was a guy named Paul who had excelled among his contemporaries as uh, in his older brotherly zeal. Perhaps Jesus did this to show us that God certainly can help older brothers see how much they have been forgiven and therefore how much they need to love. Paul reminds us that he had been a Hebrew of Hebrews, literally a Pharisee of the highest degree. So in summary, we can kind of categorize the characters here. We see the parable. In this parable, the father represents our father in heaven. Prodigal represents those sheep 
coins, those who are consumed by the sin of the world, and then they come to understand their need for salvation in order to be with the Father. That leaves the older brother to represent the attitude of the Pharisees and the scribes, those accusing Jesus, those to whom Jesus was speaking, which is the main subject of this parable. And that's the thing I want to encourage all of us to look at and pay attention to. Uh, you know, in the various accounts in the, in the Gospels, Jesus does not have a whole lot of tender words for Pharisees. Did you notice that? Mainly his words are pretty tough, even terrifying. In Matthew 23, he calls them hypocrites, blind fools, whitewashed tombs. But here, the most tender words for Pharisees from Jesus are in this parable. The words of the father to the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Again, we're going to get to that next month. But here, Jesus, we can say, goes beyond explaining what he's doing with sinners and tax collectors. He explains what he's doing with Pharisees, with self-righteous people. We know this because at the beginning of the, of the passage, in, at, in verses 1 and 2, the Pharisees are standing aloof, grumbling about the meal Jesus is sharing with sinners. And at the end, the older brother is standing aloof, angry and unwilling to join the father who is eating with the younger brother, who represents those tax collectors and sinners. So, what's the application to us? So, what? I want to each of us ask ourselves, which brother do I most resemble? We certainly ought to be like the prodigal, of course, in repentance and quickly recognizing and turning away from our sin, running back to the Father. Our lives ought to be lived with pure, sincere, and an overflowing love for God, and that love for God should lead us to service for our Lord, and that service for God ought to lead to wonderful, abounding joy. Love, service, and joy ought to mark our lives. However, if I'm honest with myself, when Jesus describes the attitude of that older brother, it hurts me to think that I resemble that. When I think about it, I'm more like the Pharisee in Luke 18, who prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector praying next to me. I fast twice a month or twice a week. I give my tithes of all that I get. And I'm less like the tax collector who beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I often catch myself with an attitude like that of the older brother. Well, you know, I work in this ministry, or I help that person, or I must show up at church 49 or 50 Sundays a year. Wow. The older brother was someone, by appearances, we would have considered a model worker, yet he did not know his father's heart. He did not understand what motivated his father. His father had a broken heart over a son who had left the fold. The older brother could not understand how the return of his derelict brother could be celebrated while a loyal son who had earned his reward was taken for granted. There are people who have worked in the church for many years to somehow earn favor with God, yet 
they do not have fellowship with the Father. If we only serve for reward, then it won't be long before we start complaining that we're not blessed sufficiently. And if someone else is blessed more than we're blessed, then we compare and grumble even more. However, if we serve out of love for him and not reward, we will be blessed, if not in this life, then the next. There's an analogy of the right spirit in 2 Corinthians 9 where Paul addresses the topic of our giving and tells us that each one must give as he is decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. In other words, whatever is not cheerfully and willfully given, the Father neither needs nor wants. We are to give out of a heart motivated by love. And in the same way, if we're not motivated by love of others, if we do not love our brother as the Father does, if we do not share the Father's burden for the lost, then we'll never know the Father's joy. In fact, if we do not love our brother, we do not love the Father. And if we don't have fellowship with the Father, our service amounts to nothing. Many Christians today don't know why they're not experiencing the joy in their faith. It's likely because they don't share the Father's burden. We are often more concerned about the form of our faith than the substance. We often do not see things from God's point of view. The prodigal realized what his older brother did not. And in his father's house, there is always a surplus. There's enough of God's grace for all of us. What burdens the father's heart is a child who runs away from him. What gladdens the father's heart is a child returning to him. The father rejoices when a sinner comes home, and it will give us joy as well. But the older brother didn't share his father's concern, didn't know how his father felt because he spent no time with his father. And the reason many people don't have a love for the lost is because they don't spend enough time with the heavenly father in talking to God through prayer, in listening to God through reading their Bibles. To have a love for the lost souls requires us first to have a love God. It is love for the Father that causes us to care for the lost and the hurting. When Jesus uh, cross-examined Peter repeatedly, saying, Peter, do you really love me? And Peter answered several times, of course I do. He said, well, if you love me, feed my sheep. The older brother shut out the concern of his father while pretending to serve his father. So we need to find out what burdens the father and that should be what burdens us. So in summary, it seems to me that many Christians are more like the well-behaved older son than the prodigal. Self-righteousness poses challenges that are similar to wealth in terms of how hard it is to get into kingdom. It's not that wealth prevents you from getting into the kingdom. It just makes it harder. If you're wealthy, you don't have a need for the treasures that Jesus has to offer. If one thinks he's righteous on his own, he doesn't need the forgiveness Jesus has to offer in his mind. The poor and the more outwardly sinful often can more clearly see 
their need for a savior. However, the wonderful thing about the gospel is that Jesus came to deliver not only the prodigals, but the self-righteous brothers from their slavery to sin. Jesus delivers us both from the blinding sin of self-indulgence as well as the blinding sin of self-righteousness. Lord willing, we'll get into that next month for both brothers and how their father responded. In just a little while, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. And of course, a part of that intimate time is recognition that we are all undeserving of his boundless love and the sacrifices that his son paid for each one of our sins. I want to just say at this point that remember John's words in 1 John 4 where he says, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In a very practical way, that's what we can see is that which we can measure. We can't see what's on the inside, but we can see what's on the outside. We can't see the Father, but we can see our brother. And there are people who would like to assume the place of a son to be forgiven without assuming the responsibility of a brother to forgive. Person is really not ready to take the Lord's table if there's animosity in his heart toward another child of God. So if you have any resentment, any jealousy, any envy, any hatred or contempt for any brother or sister, please confess it before you partake of the Lord's Supper. In conclusion, the Christian life is summed up in repentance for sin, which leads to thankfulness for the Christ sacrifice to pay for that sin and the cleansing of guilt by the Father's forgiveness, which leads to love of the Father, which leads to service for the Father, which leads to joy with the Father. We measure our love for the Father by our love for our brother. Your service to the Father is measured by your fellowship with the Father. And your joy with the Father is measured by the degree to which you share the Father's burden. Now, if you feel in your heart that you have been serving the Lord to earn his favor or earn it back, or if your service to the Lord has been a substitute for fellowship with the Lord, just confess it. Repent, get right with God today, even before you take the table. If you don't know Jesus personally, you can today. Call upon Jesus today. Recognize that you cannot achieve the righteousness of God's law in your own strength, that you, like the rest of us, are a sinner. Repent and turn from your sins. Turn to Jesus. Simply ask him to forgive your sins and acknowledge him as Lord of your life, and he will. i got to warn you, though. He does not promise you a comfortable life without pain. While in this life, God's will for you or me may be something we would consider good or maybe something not so good, but 
Believing in him, putting your life in his hands, gives you the ability to accept God's will for your life, come what may. His promise for you is not necessarily riches in this life, but the abundant riches of eternal life in the presence of a loving and merciful Father. If that's what you want, and you're not sure that you have it, please talk to one of us today. Please. Hey, as the worship team comes up, uh, please stand. We've got a passage here out of Romans 8, which we'll recite together, which uh, I think kind of sums up the message in a, in a no- number of ways. Okay, if you can all see that, hopefully it's not too small. Here we go. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry, Abba, Father. Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ.